1: What a world, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and something tells me reality is a lot weirder than the monotonous jobs, freeway traffic, and mind-numbing entertainment were served up most days. And if you look deeper into your cities and towns, it seems that the statues, monuments, and park layouts often provide the evidence that someone seems to know a little something about energy, intention, and symbolism. And as surprising as it is to me that the planning of such esoteric layouts still exists in our current shallow society and hasn't been lost to an age of deeper minds, it's just as curious that ancient stone circles, hinges, and megaliths in some places seem to speak to a similar knowledge of harnessing energies, magnetic anomalies, and an intimate knowledge of ley lines. Whether some of these portal places and energy vortexes are natural, only being marked by man, or if they're created, or at least amplified by the structures built in certain places, is still a bit fuzzy, but when you examine stories of unexplainable disappearances of people, planes, and ships, cryptid sightings, UFO encounters, and ceremonious ritual, one of these hotspots is most likely nearby. Well, today's guest Chad Stemke knows these things all too well as he's been investigating urban portals, energy anomalies, and sacred landscapes for several years, mainly in his local area of Michigan and the Great Lakes. He's the author of books like Mystic Michigan, Michigan's Stargates, Temples, and Sacred Mounds of Transformation, The Culmination, A Catalyst for Change, and most recently Stargate Detroit, Transcending the Gateways to Freedom. You can find his work at chadstemkey.com, and I'm sure this is going to be a good time. The herbal portal place plotter, sacred landscape locator, and marker of modern mystical cities. Chad, my man, welcome to the higher side.
2: Oh, Greg, man, I'm humbled. Thank you for that introduction. I (laughs) can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Appreciate the invite.
1: Uh, I try, man, and thank you for being here. I wouldn't have thought it when I started the show, but some of my favorite interviews have been with guests who research the esoteric landscape of their area. Ross Bend in Philadelphia, Michael Wan near the Susquehanna River, Corey Daniel in Phoenix, Arizona. And you do that with Detroit, the Great Lakes area, and even mild stomping grounds of St. Louis, Missouri. It is fascinating stuff. But how do you like to introduce people to the work that you do? How do you describe it?
2: Well, my initial research, talking about the urban portals, really began by looking into the ancient sacred landscapes, usually the Native American sacred landscapes in North America, but in particular the Midwest where I live. And what I quickly found out is 90% of them or so are built over. They're usually located in the heart of a city and something's been built on top of where they were. And a lot of times there happens to be parks on top of them. And these parks, many times, happen to be showing up with incredible symbolism, sometimes symbolism that even matched these ancient sites, and sometimes you know other symbolism—portal symbolism, Egyptian symbolism, cosmic symbolism—you know I could go on and on. But it's really strange how these parks are showing up, and what I like to call urban portals, and these sacred parks are showing up on what were already once pieces of sacred land. So I've been going kind of city to city and looking where the old sacred landscapes were and trying to decode some of the parks and art and architecture that's manifested on these spaces.
1: Mm. Yes, I like it. And building on top of older structures, especially in these energetic hotspots, is a big theme with the researchers that are trying to reconstruct the human timeline and Look at how things might have been manipulated. Maybe it goes back way further. Maybe it's way shorter than the Vatican wants us to believe with the Gregorian calendar and the whole BC-AD split. And it is very curious. It's going to make it very hard to unravel the truth of that story when so many of these things have been built over.
2: It does. It does make it hard. And I think that's why it's important. Like You just mentioned some of my favorite researchers, Ross Band and Corey Daniels, and Michael Wan and you know I think it's going to take all of these guys looking into all these different places and everybody's individual perspectives and I think we're all going to end up having to come together at some point and put our work together and intuitively try to get an idea what's going on because you know one guy can go around the country and try to decode everything but when you're decoding you know everybody decodes stuff a little differently And it's very personal. So I think it's going to take a lot of us decoding these sacred spots and kind of coming together and putting our work together and seeing where that leads. And I think that's kind of where we're at now. All us individual guys have done a lot of hard work decoding these places. And now I think we got to try to figure out, you know, what does this all mean? Because there's a lot of information. And, you know, I think it's going to take a lot of people. And, you know, I, I call on everybody out there, you know, find these places and these are places we can all go and work on decoding these mysteries and hopefully get together and figure something out what's actually going on
1: well cheers to that and that's a great sales pitch for esotericamerica.com with a researcher in every state taking (laughs) care of their page i would love to see that website and We have all sorts of odd statues and monuments that we just pass by in most of our major cities, but there's oftentimes a lot of intention put behind why specific things are in specific places. It's wild when you start looking deeper at all of it, but what were some of the first things that you noticed? What were some of the first threads you started to pull on that took you down this path?
2: Well, see, like, I got really started in Detroit. I was living in downtown Detroit, and I used to walk my dogs and skateboard at this park mm. called Hart Plaza for years, and honestly, I never recognized any of the symbolism. At one point, when I turned 30, I had a couple UFO experiences. Mm. That's when I got into the ancient mound sites, and I realized that this park I used to always go to or still went to was built over top of what was an ancient mound site. So one day I actually, you know, I was sitting there and I decided to go walk around the park and start reading some of the signs on the sculptures. I mean, I was walking around, I'll be honest, walking around smoking a joint, reading the signs and stuff just started coming to me. And that was the beginning, you know. One monument was the Transcending Gateway. Another monument was a Horace and sun monument that said it was the engine of water at the gateway to a great city calling Hart Plaza Gateway. And, you know, in a matter of a week, I had found so much symbolism in this one plaza that I had never recognized after years of going there. And it just took me to take the time and, you know, open my eyes and do a little bit of research. And this park took on a whole new life that I had never witnessed before that.
1: That's a great summary. In your book, Stargate Detroit, you write a little bit about the history of the city and how it got the unfortunate name Murder City for a while. And then they tried to revitalize the city in the 70s by building this big complex called the Renaissance Center and a bunch of new parts that you call the hub of symbolism, this heart plaza you're talking about, which you say was built to be aligned and correlated to the Giza pyramids as well as the stars. What more can be said about that, and at least these attempts to change the energy of Detroit at the time?
2: Yeah, well, the artist who came and built this plaza in 1974 is a Japanese-American artist and Sama Noguchi. And one of the very first things I recognized when I started doing a little research on this plaza was when you looked down from the aerial view or a bird's eye perspective, you know, on Google Earth or something, that... The layout of the park was identical to the layout of the Giza Plateau. Several of the main monuments, the amphitheater, the horse and sun fountain, and a pyramid, all aligned and were correlated exactly like the pyramids in Giza. And there was even a pathway, just like the pathway leading to the Sphinx, only this pathway led to a giant obelisk. So, you know, it almost seemed too good to be true, so I started doing some research on the artist, and sure enough, he had just returned from Egypt. He had been in Egypt for a year or so on a sojourn, as he called it, and he was super interested in the relationship the Egyptians had with their pyramids. And when he came back to America, the very first opportunity he had to build a park, he built Hart Plaza. And coincidentally, or not, it happens to be correlated just like the Giza pyramids. Now, I always like to point out this is 1974. So, Robert Bouval's Orion correlation was never heard of. This was, you know, 20 years before anybody heard of aligning pyramids to the stars. So, I always point out did Naguchi get this information when he was on his sojourn, or did he come here after being on his sojourn and come to this special location? and get a possible subconscious download of this information and you know i know that sounds out there greg but i only bring that up because of a previous art project he proposed to do back in 1947 and he had this other idea that he was going to create an earthen structure and it was going to be called the face to be seen from mars and it was going to be huge two miles wide by a mile long have a pillar of a nose that was a mile tall and only be recognizable from as far away as the moon or mars and his intentions were if we were to destroy ourselves in a nuclear holocaust this is back in 1940s that the martians or an outside alien civilization one day would recognize that there at one time was life on planet earth you know and a pretty crazy idea of course it's 1947 but then 30 years later we all know NASA sends back images that appear to have a face on Mars, and you know I tell you what when you put these two images of Noguchi's vision of a face to be seen from Mars next to what may be a face on Mars, I mean symbolically they're almost identical, and you know Naguchi was concerned about nuclear holocaust, and we have Dr. John Brandenburg talking about this face on Mars and a possible nuclear holocaust on Mars due to some studies on the isotope so did Naguchi get this download you know once again previous to it being discovered so that's the only way i say it, it could be subconscious that he aligned heart plaza to the pyramids and the constellation of orion or it could be intentional i don't know for sure <laughs> but either way we have this really cool temple plaza aligned to the pyramids and it has all kinds of Egyptian symbolism. Say one of the pyramids is actually aligned to a pyramid at Hart Plaza. So, you know, you don't got to look too far for the symbolism there. The other monument aligned to the center pyramid is called the Horace and Sun Fountain. And this is dedicated to Horace Dodge, the automobile pioneer. But, you know, we can probably use it still Horace and Son. And coincidentally, his son's name was Horace Jr., So, you know, Egyptian mythology, there was, in instances, a Horus the Elder and a Horus the Son or a Horus Junior. So, you know, there is all kind of this Egyptian symbolism. And not only is this fountain, like I said, dedicated to Horus the Son and Horus the Elder, but if you get a chance to go to my website and look at the shape of the fountain, the shape of the fountain is identical symbolically to the Egyptian goddess Nuit who was the sky goddess, and in some cases, she was the mother to Isis, Osiris, Nepotis, Set, and Horus the Elder. So, you know, in this one fountain, Osama Naguchi, had this fountain aligned to the center pyramid, and it contains all this Egyptian symbolism. The goddess knew it, her whole family, Horus the son, Horus the Elder. And was this all intentional or subconscious? I cannot say. He never mentioned any of the symbolism in any of his interviews i've read every interview and every book he's put out and nowhere has he mentioned that he aligned Hart plaza to the pyramids and the closest thing i can come to any of this him admitting to the symbolism is him saying at one time in the future this symbolism will be recognized when the time is right <laughs> and that's you know as close as he can get he gave brief descriptions of the fountain. In his words, the fountain was symbolic to our relationship to outer space. So, you know, that's close.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the pylon or the giant obelisk at the beginning of the plaza where the sphinx was, he said that's symbolic of our relationship to space flight. So he's definitely telling you, you know, there's cosmic symbolism taking place. But he never took that step to say, I aligned this pyramid or this plaza just like the pyramids. In Giza. But the plaza is aligned like that. And the energy is there. So if he did it subconsciously or intentionally, either way, the same power pack is laid on the ground right on the base of the Detroit River, just waiting, waiting for people to go and check it out, really.
1: Very provocative. Very provocative. I love that part about the face because it reminds me kind of of Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where he's building this thing on his mashed potatoes because he's just got this thought in his head and he's like compelled to bring it into existence somehow. It's kind of like when people talk about the predictive programming of 9-11. There's that idea that they seed this stuff in culture To, I guess, tell us, to clear them of the karma. I don't really buy into that. I really think that there are just some ideas that, kind of like a rock hitting water, they ripple out in either direction, sometimes before the event, if it's something that's uh, big enough, and people just tend to key into it you know when you're making the passport for the matrix maybe you just make it 9 11 2001 although that is an example that's a little too eerie maybe there's some funky going on there but (laughs) the face aspect i just really like and he came up with that in 1947 like the year of roswell that's one of the craziest years there is and for him to come up with that idea before we ever saw the face it also comes up in a comic book i think Jack Kirby is the one who who wrote it before it actually happened, and he put it on Mars. So, yeah, this theme, this idea reverberates through the subconscious of a lot of artists, it seems. And to quote your book when it comes to Isamu Noguchi... He once said, referring to the plaza, it's kind of a culmination of my consciousness. And then you say, he literally incorporated many items of universal symbolism, which he had hidden in plain sight within the art and architecture of Hart Plaza. What he had done is aligning and correlating Hart Plaza to the Giza pyramids as well as the heavens. Something quite amazing took place shortly following the new millennium that brought Naguchi's hidden symbolism bubbling to the surface. Well, that's very interesting. What happened? What is that... Something very amazing that you're referring to that brought this stuff to the surface.
2: Actually, the first thing that I recognized was this new monument. So he built all this in the 70s, and then in the year 2001, this was Detroit's 300th birthday. They had a contest, they wanted to update Asama Noguchi's Park. So they had a contest, and they had I think it was 100 artists come down here, 100 top artists from around the country. They had him walk around and get a feel for the park, look at some of the Noguchi stuff, and get a feel for the park, and go home and come up with some plans. And, well, the guy who won the plan created this monument that was called Transcending. And this monument undeniably looks like a Stargate. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it couldn't look any more like the science fiction Stargate from the movies. And it's 63 foot tall, and it sits right at the entrance to the plaza. And what it's actually supposed to be, I call it a Stargate, but the artist David Barr he said this is a gear, because this was for Detroit's 300th birthday. It's supposed to be a gear protruding from the earth. And it's a special kind of gear called a synchronization gear. And so that's what he said this was. And it, around this base of this monument has a green granite spiral, and it wraps around and through the center of the gateway. And just like Asama Naguchi, I was curious, is this subconscious or did he literally mean to put a Stargate down here? I know he calls it a gear. So I took the time, which I recommend anyone in this research, if you have the chance, take the time and ask the artist, you know, what they were thinking. And so he actually was kind enough to get back with me. And I asked him, you know, David Barr, I was looking at some some subconscious symbolism. I know this is supposed to be a gear. But, you know, any chance a Stargate or a portal crossed your mind? And he was kind enough to get back with me, and he said, you know, no, a Stargate never crossed my mind. (laughs) But that being said, the green granite spiral that wraps around and through the center of the gateway, that allows the visitor to leave the grid of the city for the sphere of space. So, you know, he says he never thought of a Stargate, but he pretty much described one to me, you know. I'm I'm talking about consciousness stargates. You know, I'm not trying to say this is a literal stargate where you're going to go through it and end up on the other side of the country. I, I'm talking about these are what I believe to be consciousness stargates where information may be able to come and go. And to me, that's pretty much how he described it. So it was this giant transcending stargate that sits, you know, right at the entrance to the plaza that really made me look around you know and say there's definitely something going on here and that's when i started reading the signs and everything just kind of fell together so to speak and when they were having the contest for this new monument they were updating the whole riverfront detroit and the whole project was actually entitled the gateway vision so i mean right from the get-go even the title of the project was called the gateway vision and then they erected this giant transcending gateway and that's at the front of the plaza on the back of the plaza they put a brand new installation it was called the gateway to freedom and that was a monument for the slaves this was the last stop on the underground railroad before they would cross over into canada but you know the gateway symbolism at that point was just everywhere They even, you know, the Horse and sun Fountain, they even gave that a new plaque. And the new plaque said, this is an engine of water at the gateway to a great city. They made it clear, you know, that this was a gateway vision. And, you know, all it really took to come up with all this information is really seeing what the artist had to say and reading the signs. So that's what I recommend anybody interested in getting out there and doing this. Just read the signs. Follow your intuition and synchronicities will be everywhere, I'm telling you. And if you can, you know, try to find out what the artist had to say and you'll be really surprised about the information you're able to pull out.
1: Yeah, definitely. This stuff is everywhere. And I always kind of try to unpack what the mechanisms are that they're playing with. Maybe it is as simple as the same way when you hear the right song, it can totally flip your negative mood into a positive, maybe these, Monument builders are trying to just put things in public spaces that facilitate positive energy and motivate more people to be in a good mood, if it is some kind of altruistic thing. But when I'm trying to understand how important and potent this stuff is, I find it interesting that in Detroit's case, it has had one of the hardest falls of any American city in recent memory— If these structures and incorporated symbols have an energetic effect that is important, what can account for such a string of bad luck for Detroit around 2008 and the years after? Obviously, we know it was car industry related, but it makes me wonder, did they do something to affect the energy or move some key structure or something like that? Disrupt the flow of the uh, energetic river, so to speak? It makes you wonder.
2: It does make you wonder and I don't know if any key structures have been moved so to speak, but as much as I like to describe it it as almost a pulse. Detroit ever since its inception, back in the seventeen hundreds, has went through huge swings, huge ups and huge downs. I mean at one time Detroit was considered the Paris of the West. It was one of the richest and most fluent cities and progressive cities in the world. And then it was The murder city I mean it took the biggest downfall you could imagine Mm -hmm. and all that energy was pretty much just sucked out of Detroit and then in the 90s that energy was all brought back they called it the Renaissance City and just for hundreds of years energy seems to be sucked out and then brought back sucked out and then brought back and you know with honesty I don't know how to explain that other than it's happening (laughs) but That is absolutely a phenomenon that does take place. And, you know, it usually lasts, in my estimation, 30, 40 years between each swing, and it'll go through its ups and its downs. And right now, it's on a big upswing, but it's only been on that upswing for the last 10 years or so. So it's going up and down, up and down, and the energy is going in and out. And in a way, I guess if it was some type of portal, you could... Kind of expect that. But as far as explaining it, I can't necessarily explain it. I can say, you know, the street layouts ever since they built streets have been laid out with sacred geometry. The streets downtown are laid out in a Pentagon and pentagramal fashion. They were actually fashioned after Washington DC. So I mean there's symbolism laid on the ground capturing energy besides Heart Plaza. Heart Plaza actually sits at the base of the pentagramal street layout so it's not just heart plaza that's special and laid out in these ways it's heart plaza it's the streets itself in the center of that pentagonal layout there's another park that's connected to heart plaza that's called campus Martius or campus mars and that's actually detroit's point of origin as they call it there's a giant star right in the ground that says point of origin and this is where the Augustus Woodward laid out the city streets. He laid out this pentagram and pentagon street layout. So there's, you know, since its inception in the 1700s and the street layouts in the 1800s, it's always had this symbolism. This symbolism just keeps re-emerging. If it's through the street layouts, if it's through artists and architects, say the buildings, the building in the heart of campus Mars, which is the heart of the pentagonal street layout, even the building took on the shape of a giant pentagon. And on top of that building is a giant pentagonal five-starred glass pyramid. And remember, this is that campus Mars, this giant five-starred glass pyramid, very similar to the five-star pyramid on Mars. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a small little synchronicity, but when you start adding up all of the synchronicities there seems to be something there that the symbolism seems to be reemerging through all different fashions. And then, you know, driving around that pentagonal building in the heart of the pentagonal street layout, you have Chrysler vehicles with the pentagram hood ornament doing circles around the building. <laughs> so, I mean, no, no matter where you look, the symbolism just shows up. And people make what they want of it. Some people will say that pentagram symbolism... You know, that's obviously absolute evil, you know, and other people will say the opposite. But, you know, it's a lot of what you make of it and what the society makes of it. So I always point out to me when I see this pentagon and pentagram connecting Detroit. One way you can look at it in a super general sense is the pentagram. It can be symbolic of, of course, the human body with their arms outstretched in their head it can be symbolic of the stars and it can be symbolic of the five elements so this is one symbol that can connect the earth the body and space or the stars so to have this symbol everywhere around the city i feel like these realms however you want to look at it you can look at the underworld the upper world and our realm but they're all being connected in some strange fashion and It seems like information may be flowing back and forth through these realms. And I honestly don't know where it's coming from. And that's one thing I always make clear. You know, all this information, I don't have an answer for where it's coming from. (laughs) But it's coming from somewhere. You know, a lot of these places are on ancient mounds. So could it be the deceased? Or, you know, a lot of these mounds had giant bones incorporated. Could it be the deceased giants? Or, you know, a lot of the symbolism is straight up cosmic symbolism. So could it be coming from above or both? You know, I try to be honest. I don't exactly know where it's coming from or how the symbolism keeps emerging, but it does.
1: Yes, very interesting stuff. And pentagrams definitely contribute to the flow of energy between realms. I mean, just ask anyone who's dabbled in the occult. And when it comes to these symbols, I tend to think of them as neutral but powerful and it just happens to be that powerful people with nefarious intention and the insight to know about these symbols are the ones who use them so when we see 666 or 33s or pentagrams i don't think the symbols themselves are bad it's just that only people who are the ones extracting wealth and power from everyone are the ones who use the symbols so we associate them with nefarious intention but that's just i guess uh The way I process it, I guess everyone's a little different, but this is kind of a tangent, but I looked at some of Noguchi's other notable works, and they are things like the Japanese garden at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, the landscape for the rare book and manuscript library at Yale, a museum in Jerusalem, something called the landscape of the cloud at 666 Fifth Avenue in New York. And another thing called Studies for the Sun at the Governor Nelson Rockefeller Empire State Plaza Art House. Mm. I mean, that's quite a resume. This guy gets around, and it seems like people in the big club, uh, they know who he is.
2: He does get around, and he really didn't start getting around as much until after creating Hart Plaza. Once he created Hart Plaza, I, I guess the word was out, you know, and... I always like to point out, just like you did, some of the other sculptures these guys do. And when he left Hart Plaza, he went down to Cleveland, Ohio. And in the city center, he built this giant sculpture, and it's called The Portal. And from Cleveland, he went to Hawaii, and he created his next sculpture, and it was called Sky Gate. So he was definitely on this, I don't know if you want to call it mission or what, but he had portals and gateways on his mind once he left Detroit and like you said the word was out he went on to have a heck of a career he was actually one of Buck Munster Fuller's understudies for a while and he went on to have just an amazing career but Hart Plaza was really that was his first actual park landscape he had the chance to create normally it was just sculpture so when he had the chance to create a whole park that's what manifested
1: hmm yeah maybe it was that trip to egypt or maybe there's some mystic school in japan teaching this stuff because i went down a rabbit hole of another japanese designer and architect Minuru Yamasaki, who died in the 60s, but I know of him because a dark spot in St. Louis history is the Pruitt-Igoe Building Projects. It's where the term, The Projects, actually came from, and it was sold to poor black families in St. Louis as this new innovation and the quote-unquote place to be. But once people moved in, it all started falling apart, almost by design. Cheap, probably toxic building materials were used. It's also the set of buildings that the military attached these chemical sprayers on in the neighborhood. That was a whole nother scandal. They eventually demolished it. After only a few years, there's documentaries about it you can see. But this guy also had a hell of a resume. He designed the IBM building in Seattle, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and the Twin Towers in New York City, which some say had sacrificial symbolism carved right into the building. So... (laughs) Not really related, but just another interesting, well-connected Japanese architect.
2: Oh, Greg, you don't know how related it is. Okay, so ready for this. So if you go to my website, anybody, you look at the pictures of the transcending gateway, the giant gateway that looks like a stargate. When you look through it, you'll see a giant white building. That white building that looks identical to the trade centers was created by Yamasaki he created that one first to make sure the architecture design would work on the trade centers. So you look through the transcending gateway right at his first design, what he would later use to create the trade centers.
1: Wow. Wow. Stumbled into that one. I like it. And uh, I also saw the interesting synchronicity when I was getting ready for this, that Yamasaki died in Detroit, which is the uh, crux of, of your area that you're talking about. So, oh, wow. Another weird synchronicity, but let's talk about St. Louis a little bit because you have done some research there too. People know about the arch, the quote unquote gateway to the West, as they say, but man, there is almost a full ritual built into the process of going up in the arch that I was totally unaware of, right?
2: There is. And I like to be up front because it's been five years or so since I've been there and I know they did some renovations. So some of this may or may not have changed inside the arch. I can't say for sure. But yeah, the arch itself, you know, it's more than just a giant arch. The first thing I noticed when I pulled into town the first time, because it was after dark and it glistens and all the city lights, and it, to me, looked like a giant rainbow. And that's kind of goofy to say, but it did look like a giant rainbow. And I, over the years, been researching what's called the rainbow bridge which in mythology is a gateway between realms yeah so you know I, I like to think that in my head when i've seen it but that's not enough to go out and talk about the gateway arch being a rainbow bridge but the first thing you see though when you go into the gateway arch they take you into the basement and there is just a giant mural a brick mural it's 45 foot long i believe and the artist's name was jay tetzer and it's called the builder's mural and on this mural is all the monuments that have been created for the nation. The Statue of Liberty and Mount Rushmore and the Gateway Arch. But there's one that wasn't created by any architects. That happens to be Utah's Rainbow Bridge. So, you know, right away it's like, okay, maybe there is some Rainbow Bridge symbolism here besides, you know, just glittering in the city lights. So, you know, you get to go up to the top of this Rainbow Bridge, so to speak. And you're waiting in line. At least when I went there, I was waiting in line. And they had, it was called the Mark Twain exhibit. And it was this giant scale. And the kids in line would be weighing themselves on the scale against each other. And I was surprised because whoever was lighter thought they got to go next in line. And what I was thinking, is was like, wow, that's weird. You know, as a kid, I thought whoever was bigger or heavier was going to go next. And I watched two or three sets of kids and whoever was lighter, hopped off, and they got to go next. And it took me a while to figure this out, but this is very similar to the Egyptian weighing of the heart ceremony, where they would weigh the heart against the feather on the scales of Mott, and if your heart was lighter than the feather, you're allowed to pass into the next realm. So I was like, okay, you know, that's kind of cool. So whoever was lighter than the feather or lighter than the other kid would get to go next, and you get in these little yellow pods. The best way I can describe it is it looks like a little yellow sun, and it has a white door that opens, and you climb into this little yellow sun. So, symbolically speaking, you know, I'm thinking of myself standing in line, I'm watching this kid who just weighed himself on a symbolic scale, like an Egyptian, and he got into this sun with a door, so in my head I'm thinking sun door, or you can, you know, symbolically star gate, sun door, star gate. And... The sun door takes you to the top of the what I at that point was kind of perceiving as a rainbow bridge. So you get up top, and if you you look out one way and you look down, and there's a brand new park called City Garden Park, and there's all kinds of more symbolism down there. And you can look out the other direction and you look down at one of the most ancient landscapes in North America, Cahokia Mounds. So this is a super amazing. You know, just, you're up top here, and you're looking at the past out of one window, and you're looking at the future out of the other window, and you're on top of this rainbow bridge. It's amazing. Now, when you go down, you think the experience is just about over. They make sure they put the gift shop where you're leaving, so you go in the gift shop. So, you got two things left. You got the gift shop and this one more incredible sculpture, and it's Thomas Jefferson. Of course, this is the Jefferson National Expansion. So there's Thomas Jefferson, this big bronze statue, and he's standing in these concentric rings. And he's surrounded by a red velvet rope. And, you know, I knew exactly what I was thinking when I see a sculpture standing in these concentric rings, considering all my research I've done. But, you know, I don't want to speculate, so I went in the gift shop and I got the Gateway Arch gift book and found the sculpture and what the artist had to say. And he said something along the lines of Thomas Jefferson. He's standing in these concentric rings in a space-time continuum underneath the Gateway Arch. Mm. So, like I said, I'd love to just find out what the artists say. And sometimes it's better than something you could have made up yourself. I mean, (laughs) the artist said, I created a Thomas Jefferson sculpture. He's standing in the space-time continuum, you know, in the underworld of what now is perceived as a rainbow bridge or a gateway between realms symbolically, you know, and who knew there was a sculpture of Thomas Jefferson in a space-time continuum. I had no clue when I walked in there. So it's fun to be able to share that with people so when they go to these places, you know, if you go to these places one week and you go the next week and you add this new information, you'll see these places in an entirely different light. You know, and that's, I think, part of it is being able to go to some of these places in your own town. And when you start looking at them in a new way, they take on a whole new light of their own.
1: Yes, absolutely. That is a great breakdown. And I had been in the arch many, many times. I don't know how many people actually have. But for me, it was all kinds of field trips, you know, growing up there. And I obviously never looked at it that way then. But when you actually look at the imagery that you are analyzing, it's pretty clear, especially that sun part and the scales. But then when you get to the top, you get out of the elevator and you look at the city through these windows and you refer to them as windows of opportunity. I don't know if that's your term or theirs, but they measure seven by 72 inches and 72 is an important number. Graham Hancock calls it the processional code number. Maybe this ties into Cahokia Mounds and the Woodhenge there, but tell us about 72 and the importance there.
2: Yeah, like you said, 72 ties into the processional equinox. And back at Cahokia Mounds, like I said, it's just seven miles away. The number 72 is found all over the place. One of the most sacred mounds there, the mound where the leader was buried, was Mound 72. And in Mound 72, Besides the leader, the Birdman, there was 272 burials. So, you know, there's 72 forwards and backwards, 272. And just outside the mound complex, there's a giant, it's called a woodhenge. And it's, you know, similar to a stonehenge, except for it's a woodhenge made out of cedar posts. And initially, see, the archaeologists figured out this woodhenge had been rebuilt several times. Its first incarnation only had 12 posts. And then I think it had like 15 posts and then 60 posts. But the final Woodhenge had 72 posts. And according to archaeologists, it's a mystery. Why 72 posts? They have no clue. But like you said, Greg, surely they were familiar with the procession of the equinox. So it was kind of surprising after seeing all that 72 symbolism at Kokia Mound, when you go to the top of the gateway arch and you happen to be looking out and you find out the window that you're looking out of takes on the same measurements. You know, it's just one of those synchronicities. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. And when I was listening to your presentation on the arch, it is a little hard to hear as you know, but you talk about that giant mural at the base of the arch and it does have the statue of Liberty on it. And you note an 11-sided star is at the base of the Statue of Liberty, and you talk about the significance of this symbolism with the rainbow bridge between the earthly and heavenly realms that the arch symbolizes. And you mention a Mithras connection at one point, and we know the elite love their veneration of Mithras, but I couldn't really make it out. Do you remember what that was about?
2: Yeah, pretty much I was just showing some of the artistic depictions, one of the main depictions. There's not a whole lot of different ones in Mithras. But one of the main ones you see will be Mithras on the back of the bowl underneath. It looks exactly like Utah's Rainbow Bridge underneath this arch. So Mithras, I just show a couple comparisons how they're showing Mithras and Lady Liberty in similar situations in quite a few different depictions. And that's pretty much as deep as I got with it. I was just showing how the depictions were very similar, although they were, you know, totally opposite cultures and should have nothing to do with each other you know the symbolism is still identical
1: yes I knew it was brief but I can't let any reference to Mithras get past me without at least bringing it up you know but I wanted to make sure we got in some of that stuff about the arch because my mind was really blown on it I mean some of it you have to see to realize how intentional the symbolism is but it's pretty wild yeah. And you often talk about how these places that contain this stuff are natural energy spots on top of what's been built there. It's probably why humans are attracted to them over and over again, whether it's the mound builders or the settlers of STL. But let's go back to Michigan and talk about the weird stuff. What can you tell us about the Great Lakes Triangle, the Lake Michigan Triangle, and some of the strange disappearances and events that seem to happen? pretty routinely around this area it's got to be some kind of uh vortex or something
2: yes i've been living in this area for my whole life and as i've been doing this other research on portals and stuff it's mainly been in the cities but in the background and on the news i'm always hearing these stories of missing people of boats missing of planes sometimes they're not always missing sometimes they just Go down in very unusual circumstances. And these stories have always been super interesting to me. And it wasn't really until the last five or six years where I've been studying here in Michigan, a lot of stone circles have been popping up underwater. As they're looking for shipwrecks, they're discovering these ancient stone circles. So I started to make the connection that a lot of these unusual happenings just happen to be happening around some of these underwater stone circles and i try not to speculate if the stone circles have anything to do with it or not but that's what really brought me into this area studying these underwater stone circles and realize that there are just you know enormous and unusual circumstances around ships and planes and people and ufos and cryptozoology you know it's like a lot of different phenomena take place in the same areas. So, the Great Lakes Triangle, now, this is a triangle, this is a large triangle that encompasses all of the Great Lakes. And within this triangle, more disappearances have taken place per square mile by far than the Bermuda Triangle. Now, within the Great Lakes Triangle, there are several other triangles where the unusual experiences become even more focused. In particular, in the southern end of Lake Michigan is the Lake Michigan Triangle. And there are just hundreds and hundreds of ship disappearances and plane vanishings and unusual failures of equipment. And then in the eastern end of Lake Ontario, there's another triangle they call the Marysburg Vortex Triangle. And same scenario, ships and planes go missing, people, and right in the heart of this triangle, there is a documented meteor impact, and there are magnetic anomalies on all the navigational charts, you know, it says it right on there, magnetic anomalies avoid this area. So I've been really focusing in on some of the stories in these different regions. And like I said, there's everything from planes to boats to people missing to UFOs to cryptozoology. So, you know, maybe start with a quick person story, because this is somewhat well known, but it's one of the most unusual stories that I find. Mm -hmm. And it's, his name was Stephen Kubacki. And so this is back in 1978. And this is in the southern area of southern lake michigan i'm talking about the lake michigan triangle and stephen kubaki was one week away from graduating college from hope college and he was an adventurer so that day he was going to go out by himself on a little cross-country ski trip so he's done this trip before his parents knew where he was going and he took his equipment he went out to the shores of lake michigan had a nice fresh snow and took off on a little ski trip well he never returned home that night so his parents knew right where he should have been so you know immediately they started a search and it took I think it was two days before they actually found his skis they found his skis and his ski boots as they had stepped out of his skis and then some footprints leading out onto the ice well the footprints abruptly ended so they weren't sure what to make of it you know they kept searching for a while but Eventually, they had to tell his parents, you know, Stephen, he must have fallen through the ice, you know, and it had to freeze back over. And, you know, that's really the only possibility. So, you know, his parents moved on, and the college actually granted him a degree. He was only a week away. And that was somewhat the end of the story. Until 14 months later, Stephen awakens in a field. 700 miles, almost directly east, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. (laughs) And supposedly, you know, he wakes up and he says he has fresh, clean clothes on. He has a brand new pair of running shoes on. There's a backpack sitting next to him and it's full of maps. And he said he had a Wisconsin Marathon running t-shirt on. So he, I guess he hikes down into town and he goes to a payphone and he actually sees a newspaper and that's the first time he supposedly realizes that it's 14 months later so he calls his sister and his sister you know of course surprised to hear from him but she's like you know dad moved out that way since you've been gone and he's only 50 miles away so Stephen hitchhiked to his dad's house and you know imagine the surprise when Stephen's dad opens the door and there he is and Stephen supposedly has no memory of this it was a big media frenzy you know steven's back and everybody wanted to interview him he did a couple short interviews and you know he said he doesn't know what happened he said he feels like maybe he ran a marathon due to his t-shirt but he really doesn't know and they wanted him to go see a psychiatrist and he refused he's you know he said i know nothing i'm not going to see a psychiatrist but that said, he became a psychiatrist as a career. So wow. you know, did he ever figure out what happened? I don't know. I'm not sure. He's never. He's still around. He hasn't talked about it. He's a psychiatrist. I believe he's living out in Seattle. He, you know, he's a big outdoors guy. You can go on Facebook and see some of his pictures climbing mountains and stuff. But he doesn't want to talk about it. And if that really happened, I, I'm not so sure I'd want to talk about it either
1: right he did write a curious book though didn't he
2: he wrote a couple of books and see the last one he wrote was called god man and existence i believe it was and i tried to read part of it and it was a tough read man i was it was a little much for me i expected to go in there and read it and pull out a bunch of information and i got through maybe the first chapter and i was having trouble comprehending what this guy was talking about it was over my head he would write a paragraph and then back up the paragraph with mathematical equations. And I just couldn't follow, you know,
1: (laughs) I love it. It sounds like someone who had some kind of download experience, but I also wanted to try to fit one more into this first hour because it's quite similar, but there was a weird disappearance of a fire chief in Toronto that also seemed to involve skiing, but when it comes to these weird disappearances, especially someone who's been picked up and put somewhere else, I kind of look at their profession, and a fire chief, I mean, kind of knows his way around the wilderness, you would think, but this is pretty mind-blowing. Tell us about this guy.
2: Yeah, like you said, man, the people this happens to, that that's a big part of it. It'd be one thing if, you know, if somebody you couldn't have a lot of confidence in, but Stephen Kuback, you know, he was a supposedly a really respected college student and this guy we're talking about david Philippitz. he was a chief firefighter in toronto and him and a couple of his fireman buddies decided to take a little ski trip to new york and well the last trip down the hill they all went to the cars you know skied straight to the cars and david decided you know i i should take a couple more pictures i didn't take enough pictures to show my wife was here So he's going to take this one quick run, take some pictures from the top and meet his buddies back down by the car. Well, David never returned. They seen him go up. They watched him go up the chairlifts and he just never came back down. So, you know, first they started looking for him and they couldn't find him. So then they got the ski patrol looking and ski patrol couldn't find him. So, you know, then they got the cops and after a day or two, shoot, all his friends from Toronto came in, his firefighter buddies, his wife, everybody's combing the hill looking for David. And eventually, I think it was four or five days later, his wife gets a call while she's at the mountain looking for him. And it's David. He's like, I'm at an airport. I don't know where I am, you know. And she's like, well, look at a sign. So he looks at a sign. He's He's in Sacramento Airport. So she tells him, "You know, we'll get some help, get the police or somebody, so he gets the police, and people show up at the airport, and David's standing there in his full ski outfit. He still got his ski helmet on. he still got his ski goggles on top of his helmet. He has no clue, and they checked the flight records. he didn't fly in. they tried to find you know if anyone picked him up hitchhiking, they couldn't find any threads that way, so you know. Once again, just kind of was here one moment, was across the country another moment, no memory. God. You you know, I'm honest, I don't know what to make of it. Some people go straight to the strictly paranormal. You know, did they step through a vortex here and end up there? Or you can go completely opposite. They just had some kind of conscious breakdown and don't remember anything. And with all honesty, I don't know what's happening, (laughs) but people are ending up other parts of the country and having no memory of it but in all intense aspects still being healthy and fine besides not having memory they're still healthy yeah you know stephen kubaki's 14 months later and he wakes up with clean clothes and healthy like they had to be somewhere for 14 months Mm
1: -hmm. but i don't know where amazing amazing yeah i guess they met the runners of this human energy farm, and and escaped the slaughterhouse. But I do find this stuff really fascinating. Of course, the Great Lakes Triangle area has thousands of shipwrecks, thousands of planes that have gone missing. And those are interesting because a plane going missing, obviously it's very large, but it doesn't seem as unbelievable to me for some reason as these people who just completely disappear and then reappear somewhere else and have no memory of the events, or at least they don't want to talk about what happened because maybe it was way too weird to even explain. That's my hope. I hope one of these people, you know, write me, let me know. I'm sympathetic to your cause. I want to know what happened if you have any insight, but I've heard you talk about a flux transfer event. And I don't know if this relates at all to possibly what happens to these people, but it is an interesting possibility and it does seem to be real can you explain what that is
2: yeah absolutely what's well, definitely real nasa back in 2008 reported that at that point they said every eight minutes but very often either way a magnetic portal opens up between the sun and the earth they said every time the magnetic field of the sun collides with the magnetic field of the earth a magnetic portal, an uninterrupted path will open up to the earth. So I started, you know, contemplating I've been looking at all these magnetic anomalies, you know, for years and all these unusual circumstances that surround them, but, you know, where the anomalies come from, that's anomaly in itself. So I wonder and I speculate, could these magnetic portals that come from the sun to the earth, could they be focusing in certain places that are Creating these magnetic anomalies, and then ancients would go there and they'd build mounds or build stone circles on them, and you know, they'd pick up this information. And you know, it's pure speculation on my part, but the science part of it, that's true, that's not speculation. They're saying that there are magnetic portals connecting to the Earth. And if you want to take it out even a little deeper in space, they're now saying also that the center of every galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, we have a black hole. And they're saying these black holes may actually have wormholes connecting to neighboring stars. So if that's the case, now we're talking about a possible transportation from a black hole, or say a center of our galaxy or any galaxy, to a neighboring star, say our sun, which in turn is creating magnetic portals, creating uninterrupted paths to our Earth, and possibly, as I speculate, creating magnetic anomalies on the earth were ancients, and now us we're going and creating stone circles and mounds and art and architecture and you know talking about we're having these crazy experiences yeah well you know it's just speculation but could it be coming from that deep
1: well i think it possibly could we have these hot spots which are oftentimes around some sort of solar or celestial markers like the wood henge of Cahokia or that underwater henge at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And I start to think that the ancients could have possibly had some sort of solar clock to map out when these portals might open. I mean, it matches a lot of their mythology and the stuff they seem to be preoccupied with. It's quite possible that these were somewhat sundials for these portal openings. But, man, this has been a lot of fun. Anything else uh, you want to tell people about your work, the Project Great Lakes? Anything coming up with that?
2: Yeah, see, the Project Great Lakes, I named it Project Great Lakes because I plan on spending a little time on it. Like I said, I got just tons and tons of stories, and I think there's a lot more connections to be made. And, you know, you can hear three or four stories, and they sound out there a little bit, but when when you hear fifty or of a hundred of them and they all have these similar aspects, you know there's this connection, and I haven't quite figured out the connection and I'd like to spend some time trying to figure it out at least a little bit, get a little bit better grasp than I have on it, and maybe you know hopefully work with some other people and you know that seems to really bring out a lot of information when we can work together, so I'm hoping to do some of that in the near future.
1: Nice, nice. Very cool. Well, this has been a blast. Remind people where they can look you up.
2: Yeah, my website is chadstemke.com. My last name is spelled S-T-U-E-M-K-E. And I got some articles over there, a couple of books. i just like to share the information. I'm not worried about making any money, really. Just like people to pop over there and skim through the articles and see if there's anything that resonates with them.
1: Right on. Well, thanks again. Had a lot of fun. Great work. Keep at it and take care out there.
2: Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate the conversation and opportunity and thanks again.
1: That is what I'm talking about, people. Some good old-fashioned higher-side fun. Portals, Stargates, and Triangles. Oh my. This is an interview that kind of fell in my lap because I went looking for an esoteric city symbols breakdown, as I am such a fan of the Ross Bens and the Michael Wands and the Chris Knowleses and the Corey Daniels, and I wasn't really finding anything. But then my old pal Freeman Fly asked me to be on his show, and when I was checking out his latest couple episodes, as I tend to do when I'm going to be a guest somewhere, there was Chad breaking down the Detroit weirdness he's uncovered And as I dug more into his website, I thought, yeah, this sort of satisfies that hunger. Plus, he's got some great stuff on the St. Louis Arch as well. I also like that when it comes to the statues, monuments, buildings, etc., he actually incorporates the creators of these things and parses through what they had to say about them, which I think is a really unexplored area. How do these guys get these jobs? How are they connected? Where do they get their knowledge from? Because clearly they have some that they play coy with. It's no small thing logistically to secure high-value land in the middle of a major city and turn it over to one designer to create his masterwork with. Not just anyone can arrange that, and clearly only a select few get that privilege. We should know a little bit more about it, right? But Chad really has a knack for finding these esoterically designed places, and when I asked him to come on THC, he actually went looking in San Diego and found a very curious place. We didn't even get time to talk about it, but I wanted to give him credit for that and tell you a bit about it in this here wrap-up. Obviously, these things are usually best when you can see them, so maybe Google Faultline Park in San Diego if you want a visual. But Chad writes, this Living Lenses site specific art installation for the Fault Line Park in downtown San Diego is titled Fault Whisper, created by Po Shu Wang, another architect from the East. But this installation is marked by two large scale mirror finished stainless steel spheres positioned on opposite sides of the shallow fault rupture of the Rose Canyon Fault System that runs diagonally across the park. The west sphere is equipped with a viewfinder through which park visitors can see the east sphere being exactly at the center of view at the time of installation in 2015. Any future fault movement will create an offset along the sight line and will be noticeable to the viewer. An accelerator installed below the spheres deep into the fault rupture monitors the Earth's movements in real time Its movement and data stream is processed into musical notes that are gently broadcast from the West Sphere viewfinder. Park visitors can scan the QR code near the artwork and share it with friends to eavesdrop on the Earth at the rupture, thereby creating a remote intimacy that connects the local fault line with the global tectonic reality. Note that these stainless steel orbs are surrounded by symbolic representations of ancient mounds. And they really are. If you look at the picture, there's these really tightly designed mounds. They, I mean, they're mounds. They look like mounds. It's clearly an allusion to the mound builders, I would say. But also there's this piece of playground equipment in the foreground in which children will spin or swirl slash vortex around this center pole, while enjoying the park. And you can look at that. And that clearly gives off very vortex-y vibes. It's an interesting thing. It could be a swing. Why not a swing? Why something that spins in this vortex motion? Kind of curious, right? And Chad also notes that there is a serpentine design in the edge of the park that looks very, very close to the serpent mound that most people listening are probably well aware of. But it's an esoteric-looking place that I didn't know was there, and I appreciate Chad doing a bit of digging for me. I definitely plan to check it out the next time I'm downtown, as long as it's not all roped off. Can't be too sure these days. I apologize to Chad for holding on to this show for so long. It's definitely been several weeks, but I am glad I could put this out at a time when people are probably very sick of hearing about The election and the COVID protocols and just all that stuff. But another show in the can. Always happy to highlight some good old-fashioned mysterious disappearances. These ones are kind of like Missing 411, but these are adults who also reappeared. Probably the most insane kind of story we have. And they don't want to talk. I just don't get it. But if you liked the first hour today, you know we got more good stuff in the second hour, as always. Today, some of that stuff included summoning spiritual teachers from the other side, the U.S. and Canada's Project Magnet, the Lake Superior Underwater Anomaly, the Michigan Relics, curious statements from famous people about Detroit. What was Bowie talking about? You know, I'm curious. I wonder. And uh, we also talked about the Woolly Mammoth Rock and the new discovery that, uh, obviously, he talked about. Sign up for PLUS. If you don't have a PLUS membership, pick one up. You get the full archive. Hundreds of hours you haven't heard. Cancel anytime. Something else I've been doing recently, if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, is that I've been putting up these higher-side highlights, little one-minute clips that are set to music that are from the plus part of the show. So you can hear a little bit more of THC than you already have. I just put up one with Sylvia Ivanova, who you know from the New Earth YouTube channel, and one with Whitney Webb. So check those out too if you're doing the social media thing. If not, I don't blame you. (laughs) But with that, I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to Chad and to you, dear listeners. I've done my part. Your move, portal place planners, esoteric engineers, and architects of strange, energy-sucking structures. Your fucking move.
0: The truth has been hidden from me. just watch the tv and obey take some more pills when you're blue or we'll break you out of the spell that you're in together we will